Democracy, Bridging Facts and Norms. So I'm Joe Cairns. I'm a professor of political science at the University of Toronto. So how did I become a political theorist? What was my path? It, it was a curious path. I, I never studied political science when I was an undergraduate. I was studying philosophy and theology and uh, decided to go on to graduate work in theology and religious studies. I had been raised as a traditional Catholic, and this was back in the 1960s. This was in the wake of Vatican II, so they said you should go study at Yale. This was part of the ecumenist movement, and so because uh, Yale was a Protestant divinity school. And so I went there to study, and uh, after about uh, three uh, years, in the course of the three years of the PhD program there, I decided I did not believe in God anymore, and so I didn't want to do, although lots of people study theology who are not believers, but that wasn't what I wanted to do. So then I cast about for something else to do, and it's one of the ironies. In another time, I might have just taken a year off to try to figure out, but it, this was the late 60s, and if I had left school, I would be drafted. It was the time of the Vietnam War, and so then I thought I would either have to go to jail or to Canada. And I said the irony here, of course, since I've been in Canada for 30 years, but I thought I didn't want either of these things. So I, I found another PhD program, and I really roamed around, and I didn't know exactly what I wanted to do. I knew that I was interested in moral and political issues, but I didn't know quite how I wanted to think about those or approach those. I looked in philosophy, I looked at law, I looked in history, uh, a variety of approaches. And I just sort of stumbled into political science. And it was an accident of the person who happened to be the director of graduate studies at the time was also a political theorist. And he said, well, we don't have any funding, and I had independent funding from a foundation, and so I said, well, I don't need that. He said, fine. I had good grades. He said, fine, come do political. So that's how I became a political theorist. It was really one of these odd accidents. But it has shaped my attitude towards political science and political theory because I'm not very much persuaded about the importance of discipline. And you have to come through a certain path, and you have to think about questions in a certain kind of way. It seems to me that you chose your topics a lot according to different contexts and to different uh, political events that were happening around you and yeah. also in order to explain some very specific cases and that's something I think you're theorized in uh, those uh, papers you wrote about the contextual approach to mm -hmm. political theory. Mm -hmm. Uh, which promotes the use of real-life examples in theoretical research, and which also you mentioned in, in The Ethics of Immigration, this latest book you were mentioning, uh, where you propose an approach that you call political theory from the ground up, mm -hmm. which consists in building theoretical arguments based on what you call widely shared democratic ideas. And mm -hmm. the question I wanted to ask you is why this emphasis on including reality considerations in political mm. thinking and theoretical thinking? Right. So, so there's both an intellectual and a kind of personal response to that. Um, intellectually, uh, in the 1980s, there had been this big debate between the liberals and the communitarians. So Michael Sandel wrote this critique of Rawls, and it was a kind of communitarian critique of Rawls. And I read those debates, and they were very interesting and very intelligent, but also very abstract. And what it brought home to me, so I remember I had started out as a philosopher, and I, I knew about abstractions, and, and But then I'd gone through this period, partly from reading Wittgenstein, I just thought, are we talking about anything here with these abstractions? Is there anything to do that, you know, kind of, what does this all mean? Or is it just we're playing with words, we're manipulating different concepts, but, and so they look like these fierce battles, but there's 
there's nothing really behind the concepts. So it's always been important to me, as I always, uh, you probably had this experience, to say, give me an, somebody makes a theoretical argument, I say, that's interesting, give me an example. Because without the example, I don't know whether it's just uh, empty concepts. And that was my feeling with this discussion about the liberals versus the community. Is there any real disagreement here? They put it this way, that put it that but it doesn't make any difference to how you think we ought to act in the world and how. And if it doesn't, uh, how important is this conceptual disagreement after all? If you can't point to any consequences that follow for how we ought to live, that's the question in the end of the day, as Plato put it. The question is how we should live, both individually and collectively. He didn't put that part in, but that's, that's, the, that's the question. Yeah, so that's what drove the, uh, the impetus to emphasizing uh, context and one of the, and the other part of the other part of context and I'll come back to this starting with the ordinary ideas. So part of what made me sensitive to context was again the experience of moving to Canada. I noticed when I moved to Canada that debates about linguistic justice were very prominent. Now some were all for English and some were for English and French and so on, but everybody thought this was an important issue. So Rawls never talked about language. Now that's because he was an American. It's not wasn't salient in the same way, and the Spanish hadn't quite filtered through. So you couldn't, uh, if he had been a Canadian, he couldn't have written that book without at least saying something. Whatever position he took, he would have had to say something about language. That kind of brought home to me the way in which conde- context shapes the issues, and sometimes it shapes the claims. So, so it seemed to me that with a lot of these normative issues, the history mattered morally, and then people know that, but they don't quite say that. So my challenge in that book was to try to bring explicit attention to the way in which historical or other contextual considerations affected the moral argument, and to bring that explicitly into view. And in making those arguments and other arguments, and so now turning to the immigration, I'm interested in connecting to what ordinary people think. And to do that, you have to start where ordinary people are. And so it can be very helpful to build up these very abstract formal theories because they generalize and they connect things at a, at a wider level, but only if that then connects back to, to uh, the real world. And so there's this dominant tendency within political philosophy to deal with the abstractions. So I want to start from the other end. I don't think everybody, I don't think everybody should do it the way I do. I'm not saying that everybody should kind of do that, but it's a counterweight to what I think is the dominant trend we should start with what ordinary people think, and if we want to criticize what ordinary people think, we should have some way of criticizing it that is rooted in forms of argument that will make sense to them. So, there are ways of, there would be a more abstract way of saying this way I'm a kind of neo-Hegelian, or it could be a kind of Burkeanism. The, the wisdom and the insights and moral understandings that are embedded in the way we live in day to day, and the way we interact with one another, and what we, we all engage in moral reasoning with one another in our daily lives in lots of ways. And so that's what I think we ought to draw on when we engage in political philosophy and then, uh, uh, you know, show the connections and reflect upon it, sometimes challenge it. So it it doesn't mean you have to accept everything, but you want to kind of dialectically, that's the theory from the ground up, move from from those intuitions and understandings and then reflect critically. Then I have a very pragmatic question. How do you know what people think? Well, fair enough, and in fact, some people have said, you know, you've got an ideal account here of what people think about immigration, for example, and if you look at the public opinion surveys, you find, you know, so that's a perfectly reasonable uh, challenge, and it's not a, it's not intended to be a kind of descriptive account of, uh, okay, you can just take the public opinion survey and get the right categories, and this is what it'll show that people think. 
it's an attempt to appeal to a certain kind of understanding as people articulate their views. So, for example, take about uh, the issue that it's wrong to discriminate on the base of race. Now, one of the things we know, first of all, is that a lot of people unconsciously discriminate on the base of race. So it doesn't describe actual behavior. There's a lot of racist behavior that goes on. But then the next question is, well, are people able to explain why they do that? So there I think it, it matters that whether or not people overtly say, yeah, that's because blacks are inferior, that's why I discriminate on the base of race, they, or whether they feel they have to disguise that and justify it. Oh, I don't discriminate on the base of race, I just do it because of quality or work or effort or some other. Well, then that tells you something, that they are paying lip service to a kind of value, which 50 years ago people had no trouble in saying, hey, that's because they're inferior, you know, they're a lesser being. So most of the time, people aren't prepared to say that. So you do have to make a kind of intuitive judgment about what's going to connect to people and what won't. And so I start from, say, oh, everybody accepts the moral equality of human beings, and somebody comes and says, well, I don't. Okay, well, what do you think? You know, then I, okay, so you make a judgment. And actually, I'm happy to talk to anybody, I was happy, but I'm willing to talk to anybody about anything and start, you know, but if they're not just being tendentious, if it's a real person... That person will have values and will have commitments, and it's unlikely that they will be radically at odds. If it's a person, now it becomes different if you're talking to people, and so I'm more hesitant when you're talking to people from completely different life experiences. And so I'm writing for an audience. Most of the people who read my stuff will be English speaking, or they'll certainly be, if they're not from North America, they'll be from Europe, and they'll there will be some broad range of similar attitudes and dispositions. Will it be the same for somebody brought up in a completely different society in Asia or Africa? Or Well, I don't know. I, I sort of expect, there are good reasons to believe, a lot of the, there will be a lot of commonalities and a lot of links, but I don't want to presuppose quite as much. I feel confident about some of these things. I've had enough conversations with people from Europe, I, about what they think, I don't have quite the same confidence about when I don't know people and I don't know the societies and I don't know the cultural values. But I think that's a conversation worth having. So then it, my idea is, well, I'll tell you what I think and you tell me where this is going wrong for you, where you don't share this presupposition or you don't share that assumption and let's see where we can find common ground and then work from there. So that's another way of doing it. It's an invit The political theory that I write is not intended as an authoritative pronouncement. It's intended as an invitation to a conversation which can take place at many levels and it depends on where people are and what they find challenging and what they accept as the starting point. So very concretely you're mostly getting a sense of what you can take as granted as the reality or the context you're speaking to by conversation with as many people as possible. Yeah, I mean, and the conversation is partly you know what you read yeah. and what you hear from others, and yeah, uh, right. It's a, it's a, it's an, it's a perceptual. It's not intended as a kind of descriptive accuracy, but, but it's a, you know, every conversation you try to find your way. Or how do we understand one another? And so it's an attempt to construct that sort of conversation. And then I was wondering because you also offer another approach in the ethics of immigration, which is this shifting presupposition approach. Uh, which seems to me to make it possible to actually avoid having to choose among assumptions about what the reality is. Well, right, but so, so I think they're actually intimately connected because, as I was just saying, you know, I think I can, I assume 
I'm talking to people, they're going to agree racial discrimination is wrong. So now what if I encounter somebody who says, oh, that's not what I think. I think, you know, these people are inferior, intrinsically. I say, all right. Well, let's see if we can find some common ground. So now I will shift the pre... So, in the first case, I just start with one of my presuppositions is racial discrimination is wrong. I can use that as a starting point for subsequent arguments about then how we should respond to immigrants and so you can't uh, adopt policies which are racially discriminatory because you accept as a premise. We're both working with that premise. Now you don't accept that premise. Okay, let's see if there's anything you do accept that I also accept. So is there any, are there any common moral standards that we have that we can then work from? So, so one of the flips to that, so for example, in, in the book what I do is I say, I'm going to accept at the outset something that I don't think is right, which is that states have the right to control immigration. So I've argued for open borders. I'm not trying to conceal that. This is what I think is right. A just world will be one in which there's open borders. But I know most people don't believe that. And it's not like racial discrimination where it's unusual to find somebody overtly discriminatory today. This is common. I know that. Most people are going to take that as just common sense and they're going to think my view is weird. So, okay. So I want to be able to talk to people who don't share my view on this open borders thing. And one way to do that is say, all right, I will genuinely try to bracket that and work within your assumption. States have the right to control. Let's think about the way in which a set of moral issues about immigration nonetheless arises even accepting that premise. So that's, that's an example where I'm accepting as a premise for the moral argument something that I actually think is wrong. I'm not concealing that I think it's wrong, but and, and it's a kind of thing that we do all the time in ordinary conversations too, is we accept for purposes of discussion somebody else's assumptions or framework uh, in order to see if we can reach agreement on something even though we may not share that initial assumption. And then I'm wondering, do you think there is any relevance of empirical political science research for political theory? Well, yes, you know, I, I'm, I'm one of those who thinks there ought to be more interchange between empirical political science and normative political science. I mean, uh, first of all, lots of times the normative claims depend on consequences, and uh, the question of what the consequences are is often an empirical question. So uh, there's a tendency on the part of uh, normative political theorists sometimes to assume too readily Uh, the consequences that they want to follow, and those may or may not be true. So that's one clear area. And it seems to me that empirical political scientists often depend implicitly on normative theorists to a much greater degree than they are conscious of, because you ask yourself, well, why is this an interesting question? Why do you want to find out this relationship, or this explain this social dynamic? Usually there's some normative view behind that. This is important because we think this is, it's, there's something of moral importance at stake. There's very little basic science in political science in the sense that a basic science might just be interested in understanding the way the world works. And just in a kind of foundational level, the cells do this and so on. So, of course, some people study the cells because of the cancer, but some people just genuinely want to understand the way the world works. And I guess there are social scientists who have a similar interest that really are not motivated by anything other than understanding how the world works. But really, an awful lot of them are not like that. They're raising questions because they think these are questions that are politically relevant and morally important. And so then it's important for them to think through these normative dimensions because that will affect the kinds of questions that they ask. 
it's right to be worried and to pay attention to not letting the fact that you would like a certain answer determine what you find in the facts. I do, you know, kind of, you know, you should find out what reality is, and that isn't always what you want it to be. So some people reject the fact-value distinction altogether, and I don't. You know, I think there are sometimes facts, unpleasant facts, <laughs> you know, uh, facts of the facts. And so it's appropriate to recognize the distinction between empirical and normative inquiry to some degree, but they are connected in various ways. More in the sense that empirical work would kind of confirm or infirm theory, and theory would inspire empirical research. Yeah, and, 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 and empirical work might inspire theoretical research that, that you learn as a result of understanding how the world works in a certain way that, there are, you know, that your framework should shift. You're not thinking about certain questions that are important and just paying attention to that, you can see that there are whole puzzles that emerge. I mean, if you think, just to take a trivial example about the empirical work that is done on unintended consequences. If you're going to make a normative argument, you have to be thinking about the possibility of unintended consequences. Uh, but the identification of unintended consequences was an empirical discovery, not a normative discovery. And there are lots of uh, ways in which empirical discoveries of that sort affect. Uh, if you're going to talk about deliberative democracy, you have to have understanding of what the possibilities of deliberation and the consequences of doing it one way or another. And, and again, those can be largely empirical. Have you ever worked in collaboration with empirical researchers? Gee, I don't think I have directly. But, you know, I, I have conversations, certainly with colleagues, and, and uh, you know, it's something I pay attention to. Our department is one in which there's a lot of conversations that go on between the empirical people and the, and the theorists. And I've supervised dissertations that involved, so that's kind of, collaboration, we might say. So I've certainly had dissertations that had both empirical and normative dimensions. So somebody writes a dissertation on Nigeria about the claims of ethnic groups. So there's both an empirical and a normative component. Who's demanding what and in what forms and what do we think about what they're demanding? Are these reasonable demands or are these... So there is, a, you can recognize in that context that often these claims about identity and so on, they serve political purposes, their groups are aspiring to political power, they're political leaders who have aspirations, so, so you can have a kind of empirical analysis. But then you can also think about, well, so all right, but, but uh, the world is filled with people acting, pursuing their interests, but sometimes we think those interests are legitimate or at least permissible and other times not. What do we think about these claims? Does that mean we shouldn't recognize any group claims? And what would it mean not to, whose interests are served if we don't, if we ignore group claims? So, so I think that's an example of where the normative and empirical intersect. And so one of the things I've discovered is that when people do this kind of work, it's very hard for them to get a job because the, the, you've got these categories, the empirical political scientists think it should be empirical, they're, they're very worried about anything normative, the normative political theorists think, you know, well, it should be political theory if you're dredging around in facts. That's <laughs> So there's a real unfortunate division, I think, within the discipline that insists on the separation of these categories that undermines our capacity to understand the world in fruitful ways. What is, in your opinion, the role of scholars in democracies? What can they bring to democratic debates and what do you, even as a political theorist, think you can bring? Well, scholars is a broader category than, than uh, political theorists. You know, there are, so at this conference, people are pointing out that there are people who are trying to bring their expertise 
to bear in various ways. Political scientists are trying to engage in the public arena. I, I have not myself, though I admire it, so I've not been much of a public intellectual. I don't write a lot of op-eds. It's just not something I'm very good at or comfortable with. I don't know why. I was conscious really early on when I wrote the piece on open borders or and even when I wrote my dissertation, okay, if you're going to argue for egalitarian market socialism and you're going to argue for open borders, no political party is going to want you to, you know, be an advisor to them. And, and indeed I heard, you know, I just gave a talk in uh, Berlin last uh, December and I heard on the grapevine that no politician in Berlin wanted to be on the same panel with me because they didn't want to be smeared with the, you know, oh, he's with the open borders person. So uh, that's actually okay uh, with me, you know, I, and indeed I've given that advice. I was once called up by somebody from the Democratic Party to say, well, you were interested in immigration, maybe you could come consult with us. And I said, no, you probably don't want me. Do you know that I'm, really? oh, no, once they find, you know, they oh, yeah, thanks for telling me, no, you know. <laughs> because uh, you know how these things are going to be used politically, right? That is to say, it's not... It's not that the, the people themselves wouldn't be happy to have a conversation, it's that they know that will be taken up by opponents and used in a way that... Uh, and that's just the reality of political life and the way in which identities and will be manipulated and construction, so that's the reality. So I sort of know that and I, I'm not particularly troubled by that, but I think it's good, but not everybody makes the kind of arguments I make, and I think it's good when people are able to engage in the, in the public sphere. I mean, I, you know... Scholars have spent time thinking and reflecting. Theorists have spent time refining arguments. And I, I mean, I was very pleased. I did. I had an interview with somebody from the New York Times about my book, uh, the Washington Post. So I'm very pleased when there's a more popular. I'm able to kind of express these things in ways I would like to reach a wider audience. I'm happy when I can communicate with ordinary people, not just scholars and, and theorists, about what I'm thinking, and happy to hear what people say in response to that. So I think that's highly desirable. I don't claim any special authority. I do claim to have spent a lot of time thinking about these things, so you'd expect that I might have thought them through more than somebody who comes to it for the first time. But, but in the end of the day, you know, the issue is whether or not I can persuade people about the ideas. So I have friends who are activists, and I don't know that I would describe myself as an activist. I'm, I think in most respects, politically, I'm just a kind of normal citizen, but I admire people who are activists because they're devoting themselves to the... It's a, it's a certain set of skills and capacities that you get as an academic researcher and, and even as a political theorist, which can sometimes be useful in the public domain, um, but certainly don't have any special status. But sometimes you have something distinctive to contribute because of these capacities. What is interesting is that, from what you explained to me, you write with those people in mind, with, with the general public in mind. And yeah. you write on cases that are touching them and that in in the current questions yeah. and in the current debate. So yeah, I was wondering if, if for you when you write those theories, you think they can they could become informative to policy making? Or if it's detached somehow or Well, it it, it uh, varies. Sometimes I think of it as relevant, and I'm happy when I see people taking it up, whether they cite me or not, and sometimes for political reasons they would be wise not to uh, cite, cite me. So, for example, what I have to say about the treatment of irregular migrants, I think is doesn't involve, as I said, my views on open borders at all, and I would be very happy to see that 
uh, in as a part of public policy. Uh, I'm not myself an activist. There are whole sets of, you know, pro-migrant organizations and so on that are dealing with it, and I'm not myself active in those, and partly that's just personality and kind of awkwardness in various ways, and, and you know, again, I think at least in some cases it would be disadvantageous for them to be associated, you know, the, the enemies are going to say, oh, you're for the migrants having rights, you must be for open borders, and that will discredit them in the eyes of the public, and so, you know, I'm not, I wouldn't always be an asset in that way if I were associated with these groups. Some of the groups do want it, they're just happy to advocate that way, but I think there is a problem politically with because a lot of people could be sympathetic to the claims of migrants if they think it doesn't entail open borders, and it doesn't by itself. Again, you know, me and Waltz are on the same page on one thing and very different on another. So so I'm ha I would be very happy to see those, and one of the reasons I try to write in the way that I do is in the hope that in one way or another these arguments will filter through and people will take up these arguments and advance them in the in the public sphere. But other arguments, I wrote a long paper on Fiji once, which is one of the things that a theorist I'm proudest about, but I never expected the Fijians to read the article, whether they have or not, and I didn't expect to have any impact. I, that was intended entirely as reflection, something that I was trying to understand. And uh, although I'm, as I say, very proud of the paper and feel very good about it as a piece of work, it wasn't intended to have an impact on anything that was going on in the world in, in Fiji. Maybe indirectly, the lessons of it applying to how people thought about culture and claims of identity and, and the relevance of history and so on and so forth, but not, not directly. So, so they're different. Different pieces have different salience in that sense. Mm -hmm. Are there responsibilities, social responsibilities for researchers either to work on certain topics or not to say certain things or to correct when their ideas are not used in the way they would want? Uh, I do think there are social responsibilities for researchers. I definitely think that. And uh, there's a colleague named Burke Hendricks who's written about political theorists as dangerous social actors and in, in which she argues that, you know, sometimes theorists, by not paying attention to this, can really do harm. This was particularly in context of indigenous peoples and their claims, and and I, I find that a, in some ways quite a persuasive argument and set of critiques. Uh, I think it's easy to, on the one hand, we shouldn't overstate that. So I, the example I always use is that my youth, Che Guevara, wrote this manual for guerrilla warfare, and I learned subsequently that was being used by the Green Berets as a training manual. So whatever you write, somebody else will be able to use it and use it for the opposite purpose of what you intend. And that's just a reality. You can't control if you write a particularly good argument, they will say, oh, this is how I can make the best counter-argument, and you have enabled them to make it. That's, that's life, and, and you shouldn't imagine that you can, there's no way in which you can kind of control ideas and their, the uses to which they are put. And, and one of the uses will be the opposite of what you intend for sure. But that doesn't mean that you can't pay attention. So I do think about how I frame things, how certain, uh, the consequences of putting things one way rather than another, how this is likely to be taken up, how this is, you know, there, so, so I do think one ought to pay attention to that and that it, it matters. What interests me are issues that I think are important in the world. So questions of economic justice, questions of race and identity and multiculturalism, these are all, uh, immigration, these are all salient topics in the real world where there are questions of justice and injustice, and that's what matters to me. 
but I think it's good to have people who care about things purely for their intellectual interest or purely historical interest who don't think that way and I'm not opposed to you know I don't think my way of being in the world is the only way to be in the world or the only way to be a researcher or a scholar and that everybody ought to do it that way I do think I would resist some people say you can't have that kind of commitments you can't and I, that seems to me impossible but um, yeah thank you very much you're very welcome brought to you by democracynet.eu